Well, good morning, Living Water. How's everyone doing this morning? It's good, good. Well, I'm glad to see you out. We made it into daylight savings time. Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. Today we'll be covering 8, chapter 8 in its entirety. So we're going to read uh, the entire chapter before we get into the message for today. Uh, when you find that in your Bibles, you can go ahead and stand up. Uh, if you have one of the Bibles that we provide here, uh, we'll be on page 414. Page 414. Esther chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1, we find, On the day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther, or on that day, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and, to, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given to Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time, in the third month, which is the month of Savan, and the 23rd day, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each person in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters mounted by couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any army, armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On, the day throughout, <clears throat> on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. 
and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white and with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask his blessing upon our brief time together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for another opportunity that you have provided me to proclaim your greatness via your word to your people. I need your help. Please fill me with your spirit so that I may speak on your behalf. Please cleanse me from any sin and remove far from me any ungodly human motives that do not honor you or serve your good purposes. I do ask that you would guide us in the path that we ought to walk in obedience to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us from self-deception and from the deception that the enemy would seek to uh, trick us with. And we ask these requests in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So many of you probably remember from last year uh, the event that happened in Buffalo, New York, which was the shooting at the Topps uh, grocery, Friendly Grocery Market uh, around about May uh, of last year. Well, on that day, uh, Patrick Patterson, who is a member of the Linwood Church of Christ and who was also working as a store manager there, was at work that day uh, in the back room when the incident, the incident started. One news reporter reported this about what happened with Patrick. Uh, instead of trying to save his own life, Patterson hurried to usher other customers and employees from the main area of the store to find a way out of the store. When asked was he fearful, he said of course he was, but he didn't allow his fear to stop him from acting. After the first group of people were rescued and moved out of the way of harm and danger, Patrick didn't seem to use that as a reason to leave the store. He went back in a second time to look back over the store amidst the gunfire to see if he could locate some other people. Another fellow church member who knew him and was also a co-worker assisted him in going back, and they located uh, uh, another co-worker, a, a man who was a customer, and his eight-year-old daughter hiding in like a freezer section and helped them escape as well. Uh, in reflecting on Patterson's heroic actions, the pastor of his church, when asked about what he thought about it, said this, I think that by God's, that it was by God's providential care he was in the right place at the right time. Now, we might ask in this room, has anyone ever saved someone's life or assisted in saving someone's life? And I would guess that probably some of you have assisted or saved someone's life. Maybe you at your younger years or some of you in the years that you're in now have worked as a lifeguard and you had a chance to, to rescue someone or some of you work in the field of medicine, and this is just part of your, your daily job, or some of you in law enforcement, and you have rescued a variety of people over the years in your careers, or perhaps you work in the field of mental health or counseling. Some of you have helped save life because perhaps a person had fallen and you knew CPR and you performed CPR on them, or you may have donated blood. 
You may have helped a person who was choking at a local restaurant at a table nearby. You were the person who got up and helped them. Maybe you stopped an assailant, as we've told stories about some of our church members before. Maybe you used Narcan or an EpiPen for someone uh, with EpiPen with someone who's having an allergic reaction to help save their life. Or maybe you were the person when the emergency situation happened, you were the person who called 911. Or on some occasions, maybe you were the person who drove a family member or relative to the hospital so they could receive the care that was needed. And perhaps maybe one or two in this room have taken a bullet to save someone else's life. See, for most of us, we deem saving the life of another person from danger to be a good thing. Not necessarily because we say that, but our actions, by the way, we intervene in other people's lives to help them displays that we believe that to be good and right. And in those moments when you have intervened in whichever way you did to help someone else continue to live, you displayed what the scriptures called us to do. You moved away from looking out for your own interests to looking out for the interests of others. And we know that this way is consistent with the Christian life because of what Paul wrote to the Philippians, a scripture we've covered many times. He said to them in verse 4 of chapter 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. <clears throat> so in our text today, we're provided of an ancient example of this type of behavior that I've just described from the book of Esther to remind us how we ought to live as those who are the people of God. So as we return to the pages of Esther, recall to your mind how Haman, a high-ranking government official at the time, enacted a law that allowed those who shared his similar hatred for the Jews to have a purge day in the empire. And the event was planned, as we know, the way the text plays out, to happen at the end of that year that he initiated that law. And last week we found out that Haman was ousted from his position, but however, even though he was taken out of the picture, his diabolical plan remained intact. And so the purge of the Jews was still on the empire's calendar for the year. And that meant that Esther's mission was incomplete. Now, some things which did advantage, advantage the Jews happen in our text and from last week. We remember that Haman's identity was unveiled as an enemy of the Jews and ultimately an enemy of Esther and thereby revealing Esther's ethnic identity and her family relationship to Mordecai, which had been hidden up to this before point. And before all this for her, she had been passing as a Persian. Now, however, with Haman being taken out, his position provided a vacancy. And with Esther's relationship known to Mordecai, the king in the text without necessarily doing any uh, reviews or interviews for Mordecai, puts him in Haman's position, and he gifts Esther with Haman's estate. Now, in light of some research, this most, looks like, most likely looks like that th what that included was something like this. His land, any buildings or property that he owned, all of his financial assets, rule over all his servants, and his family members. Esther, in light of this, receiving this gift from her husband, appoints Mordecai to be the estate manager for her. 
at the end of all of this, in light of looking at the text, we end up with both Esther and Mordecai as Jews in high-ranking positions in the government of the Persia Median Empire. And as we see in the text, Esther's going to leverage that position, or she did, uh, as queen, out of concern for the lives of her people who were destined to die without cause from a human perspective. If you look at the text, you'll notice what she does. She falls before the king and displays great emotion. I think what's going on here is that there's probably grief, there's fear, and we seem to see by the way the narrator wants to position her that she has humility as well. And what is she pleading for? For the law that Haman had put in place to be revoked. After she presents her case and the, the king allows her to do that, the king explains to her, hey, listen, what has been done by Haman cannot be undone. And he had done, from his perspective, all that he could do to make the situation right. He had given the, her, Haman's estate to her. He had put uh, Mordecai in a position of authority. All that he could do had been done. But he was willing to allow another law to be sponsored by them, but it could not revoke the first law. And Mordecai, in his wisdom, as we've seen throughout the book, we might say even shrewdness, took full advantage of this opportunity to graft, to graft what I call the Jewish defense law. This new law allowed Jews of the empire in various places to form militia to protect their families and their property from any would-be attackers on this purge day that would come at the end of the year. So we have a law by Haman, which seeks to destroy the lives of the Jews, and we have a law by Mordecai, which seeks to save the lives of the Jews. And we notice in the text that as this new law is distributed and announced, publicly displayed in various places, it produces the opposite emotional effect that we saw back in chapter 3 with Haman's edict. Instead of people mourning and weeping and throwing ashes on themselves, they instead rejoice and celebrate and hold a holiday and a, and a feast. And finally, Mordecai is given what Haman had lusted for, royal honor. Notice in the text, he is crowned, given blue and white garments, clothed with a purple garment over on top of it. He receives what Haman longed to have. Now that we've reviewed the text, this brings me to the first point that I want to raise from the text, and it goes like this. God saves lives through his servants. God saves lives through his servants. Let me acknowledge up front that if you're a Bible reader, you probably can think of various ways that God saves people. I'm not saying more than what I'm saying. And I do acknowledge that at times God does use heavenly servants, as we see in Acts chapter 12 with Peter, to rescue his people. But our text today highlights human agents. Human agents. So we're going to put our time on that. Now, some in the audience might beg to differ with me that Esther and Mordecai are the servants of God. And I want to present my rationale for viewing them in this way. So I'm going to present that argument to you for why I believe that they could be categorized as servants of God. In our text, Esther uh, used her position and relationship, as I stated, with the king as an opportunity to be an advocate for the welfare of a people, the Jews. Think about what's going on with the Jews. The Jews could not address this heinous injustice that was about to happen to them, which would, today we would categorize as genocide. And in the same way, Mordecai, once he had been put in a position of authority, used his wisdom and knowledge about public policy 
to aid the Jews to be able to protect themselves because he legalized for them, which they did not have before, the right to self-defense. And so what we end up with is Mordecai and Esther working together to save the lives of the Jews, even though at first their first plan is denied, they continue to work to resolve the issue. And throughout the text that we see that unfolds this week and next week, the lives of the Jews are saved through the work that they do. Now, throughout this series, we have been putting forward this idea that God is the one working behind the scene, orchestrating the events so that the lives of the Jews, his people, are saved from destruction. And this, this is because, as I have mentioned on previous occasions, that this is based on what he had already promised before through his prophets uh, and in various scriptural texts. And uh, if you want to check those out, you can check out those messages where we brought some of those promises up. But as the series has progressed, what we've tried to do is pre present to you various examples from the text as we connected those with other scriptures in the Bible to support this assertion that the unseen God is at work. Taking all of this into account, we hold that ultimately it is God who is the one who's at work behind the scenes, but he's working through human agents to achieve his purposes, which is to keep his word to his people. As we look at a broader range of scripture, as we move outside of the book of Esther, we discover that God does select human agents to serve his purposes, and he gives them what they need to accomplish his will or his goal that he's trying or seeking to achieve. Let me give you a few illustrations. First, we might consider the widow of Zarephath as an example of God and his instruction to Elijah. Notice what God tells Elijah in order to save his life. He says to him, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, when we run into the widow, we find out that she's poor, which is a problem if you're going to feed other people. If you don't have resources to feed yourself, how can you feed another person? And this is where we see God empower her to do his will. What does God do in the text? Well, God performs a miracle, the very same kind of miracle that Jesus would do in feeding the 5,000 men plus and the 4,000 men plus. He performs a food multiplication miracle so that neither the widow nor Elijah starve. Another example would be King Cyrus. Speaking about King Cyrus, we find these words that God says. God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. If you were to continue to reading into the next chapter, God goes on to describe how he's going to work and reduce and, and, and advocate for Cyrus so that Cyrus is able to subdue nations before him, and God is going to be the one behind it in order that Cyrus might accomplish his purpose. God empowered him because he chose him. One writer explains the choice of uh, Cyrus by God this way. How then could Cyrus be God's anointed? The word here is used of him as Messiah, one who is anointed by God because he was called by God to do God's primary work, to free captives and open doors, just like God's servant Israel. God will choose whoever God pleases to do God's work. 
liberation and salvation. And here salvation can refer to salvation in the sense of saving a person or group from something, which would be deliverance, or saving a group or person for something, which would be redemption. They are God's concerns. And God will go beyond all human limits to get that work done. Now, some in Israel found this unacceptable, calling God's choice of Cyrus into question. But God goes on to insist on the freedom to do whatever it takes to set people free. God says, I will not be bound because you don't like the person that I choose to get the job done. I will do what I need to do. Now, since both Esther and Mordecai are strategically positioned, excuse me, like the widow of Zarephath and like Cyrus, and they also become these human agents through which deliverance is achieved for God's people, it appears that God has selected them and empowered them, which would lead to the conclusion that they are God's servants. King Saul gives us another example to press the point home. Before Saul became king, God said this to the prophet Samuel. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Notice what he says next. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. We might even add further evidence to say before Saul became the first king of Israel, we have the entire book of the judges who God had raised up. These were servants of God that God used to save his people. But there's something else that comes out as we look at this, as we compare how God works through his servants to save lives. We also notice that they, as God rescues people, he rescues them from different causes of the danger. The book of Esther demonstrates to us that God saves life from what I am going to categorize as relational danger. Relational danger. In the text, we can come to the conclusion or infer that Haman hated Mordecai and thereby hated the Jews. And his edict in the king's name allowed others like him who harbored hatred in their heart towards the Jews for whatever reason, we don't know. It afforded them the, the illegal right to kill the Jews at will. This danger was caused by a relational issue, hatred, hatred in one's heart. Now, the narrator wants us to see what Haman did and what those who followed his plan did in a certain moral light. He lets us know in verse 3. Look back at the text with me. You'll notice a word that he uses there which lets us know how he's morally viewing the situation. He uses the word evil. Haman, his plan, and those who obey it did evil because of the hate that was in their hearts. It kind of reminds us of Jesus' statement where he said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. God saves lives from relational danger through his servants. God also saves lives from other causes of danger as well. Several years ago, we went through the series on the children of Abraham in which we covered the life of Joseph. And after his family reunion, we came across this key text in the book of Genesis in chapter 50. This is what Joseph says to his brothers after they have been reunited. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are 
today. You remember the problem that was causing the potential death of many people uh, in Egypt and in the surrounding areas. There was starvation because of a famine. God had selected Joseph. If you disagree with that, simply think back about the two dreams at the beginning when he was a teenager. Then God positioned Joseph and blessed him with the wisdom to manage the abundance that God had provided in the seven years prior to the famine. So thus, I would categorize this threat under physical danger. Another example from the New Testament would be when Paul was on the ship, God sent an angel and told him that he would rescue those who were on board of the ship from physical danger in Acts 27 of the storm. So God rescued his people through Paul on the ship. God saves lives from physical danger through his servants. Let me add one more category for us to ponder the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. If you're not familiar with that book or you don't remember what it is, it's the one with the rebellious prophet and the big sea creature. That's the book. And God, if you remember, sent Jonah to warn the people of Nineveh who were in the capital or empire of Assyria at the time about his coming divine judgment because of their wickedness. That's Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And there are two verses I want to bring out from this text that point to what I'm getting at. The first occurs after Jonah has done the job that God has encouraged him to do about the coming judgment. This is what the text says. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah's message in obeying God led to the people's repentance which resulted in their deliverance. Their lives were saved from certain destruction because of the work of Jonah. The second happens in a conversation between God and Jonah while Jonah sat outside the city from a distance waiting for God to nuke the city. And God says to Jonah, he's going to teach him a lesson. He says this to, to him. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are over 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So if you're a pet lover, there's a verse for you right there. God cares about your pet. <laughs> One of the things we learn from Scripture is that God delights in mercy. I would place this example in the spiritual danger category. God saves lives through his servants from spiritual danger. Now, being an astute person that you are, you probably noticed a common element running through all of the things I've just mentioned and the examples I've just raised. They all deal with deliverance from physical death, which we all know is a temporary solution. Because as the book of Hebrews tells us, we all have an appointed day that we must make. But there is another kind of death that is far more concerning. We often refer to it in churches as spiritual death. That concept that that word goes at, whether or not you agree with that wording, is referred to by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And his apostle picks that same concept up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, states, as we have in other places, the reason why people end up having this outcome in their lives. 
He says it is that people do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible only presents one solution to this topic or this concept that we're referring to as spiritual death. Only one solution. We remember it. Let me just give you a verse that you're very familiar with. John 3, 16. The Bible talks about it, the solution in other places, but that's just one that you probably can think of the whole verse in your mind just readily. And what we learn from that is for those who have faith in Jesus, King Jesus ensures that when your consciousness, if he hasn't returned, leaves your body, that you are brought into the heavenly realm, the kingdom of light, instead of taken into the hellish realm, the kingdom of darkness. Not to mention that benefit, but the Lord also has promised to overcome physical death by permanently granting resurrection life to those who are his people. And in this life, he gifts us with his spirit so that the spirit changes our hearts. And when our hearts change, we begin to fix those relational issues as well. See, in Jesus, we find the solution to all of the categories because God saves lives through Jesus. Now, after hearing this, some of you may be calling to mind other scriptures that raises the inverse concept of God judging evil and thus because the people are who, who do evil and angels, God has to judge people and angels. You might be thinking of examples like, as I mentioned, First Samuel. You might be thinking of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas as examples. Well, for the sake of time, and I don't mean to throw it off on the next speaker, but I'm going to throw it off on the next speaker to address next week if he so desires. But I, I won't get into that today. Now to my second point that I want to raise from the text. Serve God by helping save lives from danger. Serve God by helping save lives from danger. Earlier in the series, we found out that Esther uh, was an orphan. She was adopted by Mordecai and raised after the loss of her parents. She received mercy and grace from God. Just two weeks ago, we learned that Mordecai's life was saved from evils, from um, Haman's evil plot without his knowledge of that plot. Obviously, at some point he learned it because it's in the book of Esther or whoever wrote it. Mordecai received mercy and grace from God. And this week in our text, we realize that both Esther and Mordecai, as recipients of God's grace and mercy, show love toward others by seeking to save their lives from definite doom. Well, like Esther and Mordecai, we also have been beneficiaries of God's mercy and grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus, we have received many benefits. Let me call a few to mind. Among these benefits, we might find the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit, we've received adoption, like Esther, into God's family. Redemption, we have been saved for something. Love, acceptance, and deliverance from eternal destruction. And since the Spirit has connected us to the anointed one, Jesus, we share in his anointing. And we have been brought into the new covenant relationship that was promised to Israel through the once-for-all sacrifice of God's Son, who serves as now as our great priest. And with the establishment of this new covenant came the establishment of a new law, and Jesus gave it to us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for 
another. So let me rephrase it this way. We can serve God by helping save lives from danger by loving people. Now, I want to use the categories that I've just raised earlier to help us frame out ways that we can think about rescuing people from types of danger or various causes of danger. We heard about that God rescued people from danger that was caused by relational issues, dangers caused by physical needs, and dangers caused by spiritual rebellion against God. What I'm going to do is simply pose questions in each category for you to think about how you might answer that in your own mind. You don't have to say anything out loud, but just think about what might be a solution. What might you do in this situation? So I'm going to start with the most important category of the three that I named, which is the spiritual needs category. So we all know that humans have a major problem, which the Bible refers to and we call sin. And sin puts people in danger with God. Now, for us as believers, we've experienced the solution to this problem. God has saved our lives from ultimate danger through his servant, the faithful one, the Lord Jesus and as a result, we go about sharing this news with the world that the rightful king of Israel and the, the king of the world has already been born. And Jesus of Nazareth has been appointed to be the ruler of God's creation by evidence of his resurrection. And King Jesus has conquered all the forces that stand against humanity for our ill, sin, Satan, and death through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And as Romans 5 tells us, he has brought peace with God to those who have faith in him. And as Paul says in another place, he has brought life and immortality to light. We know that he's not on earth right now because he ascended into heaven and has sat down at the right hand of God. And he has bestowed gifts from that place of honor, such as I've named before, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And we also know that he's going to return one day. And when he does, on that day, he won't be coming to save, but to judge the living and the dead. And the scriptures testify that he is the only one who can save us. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's a few questions for us in this category. In light of what I've just shared with you, should we share that good news with other people? Should we seek God's help by prayer as we seek to share that good news or announce it or proclaim it to the world around us? Should we invest time in coming alongside people to show them how to be a disciple of Jesus. Let me move on to the relational sphere. What should be the role of the church when a spouse is being abused? The seriousness of this was pressed home to me when I was brought uh, from my previous church. One of the places that I served was as the director of membership, where I, which I had a chance to oversee the new member process as I do here. And through that class, I saw a number of people over time and one of the families that came, to, came through at that time was a younger, younger family. And it looked like from at least my hour or two in acting with them in the membership class that they were able or relating well to one another. But there was something that I did not know about them, which was about the husband's anger. 
A couple of weeks later, I found out via the news that he had been arrested because he had ended his wife's earthly life. And the seriousness of that was pressed home to me. What should the church do about a child who's facing harm, neglect, or being orphaned, or is not in a home where those who they've been entrusted to loves that child? What about the child who cannot advocate his or her life because the child has not been born yet? Should adoption and generosity be on the financial agenda of Christians? What about women and children who are being trafficked? Does it look like partnering with organizations like She's Somebody's Daughter or something else? How does the church help lure tensions between ethnic groups when there are divisions and hostility? Does it look like the church being a place that welcomes people from any ethnic group with warmth and love because Christ has welcomed us that way? Does it look like showing people the love of Christ from every nation, even if they have different religious backgrounds than us? Should the church help persecuted Christians? What about refugees? Lastly, let me deal with the physical needs category. If you read the book of James lately, you probably ran across chapter 2. And you notice something that James does in the text. He connects saving faith with love in the form of meeting the needs of the poor and those who are in need, especially if the person is a believer, if the believer has the resources and opportunity to do that. But James is not the only one to raise this concept or make this connection. In 1 John 3, John does the same things, and he categorizes it under the category of love in meeting the need of a fellow believer under the same circumstances. So what might this look like for a church to meet the needs of the poor in our church and in our community? Does it look like a food pantry, a vehicle repair ministry, a compassion fund, a homeless ministry, or something else? What does it look like for a church to meet the needs of impoverished believers or the poor in other places that might not survive unless those resources are provided? Does it entail working with organizations like Wild Heart Ministries, Compassion International, or World Vision, or some other organization? Does it look like helping people to locate affordable housing? Well, at least on this one, I think we can all agree that if we're faced with somebody who's facing physical danger, such as maybe they're drowning or they're choking, that we should do to the best of our ability to save them like two recent girls did at the beginning of this month in another state. So I want to end by returning to the city that we began in, Buffalo. This past December, the blizzard of the century, or as the leader called it, hit Buffalo, claiming the lives of almost 40 people. But amid this tragedy, God was at work as well. Pastor Al Robinson and his wife Vivian, who you see on the screen, lead a ministry or a church called Spirit of Truth Urban Ministry. And on that night when things were happening and the storm developed, they felt led by God to open their church up as a place of refuge during the storm. One article went on to say that the pastor and his wife who live on the campus of the church, and they're in their mid-50s at the time, before all of this happened, uh, they were planning a family get-together, a large family gathering. They have nine children by birth and eight grandchildren at the time. Maybe they have more now since they have so many children. 
And as they were planning this uh, big family get-together, they were just planning this for their family for the holidays. And in light of that, because of that, they bought two weeks' supply of food. They also had stored up several beds on the property that had been removed from one of their church's addiction treatment facilities because that facility had been recently sold. And so they just happened to have all these beds at their church, which they wouldn't normally have. Pastor Robinson believes that the availability of foods, bed, and power at the church during the storm was divinely orchestrated. He said, it's so crazy. I mean, all things really do work together for good for those who love God and call according to his purpose. One of the first families to arrive was led by the mother named Nikki Tompkins Ray. She came with five of her family members. She said this, I I'm forever in debt to you, speaking of the pastor and his wife. My family, our nightmare before Christmas, turned into a Christmas miracle. I thank you and I praise God for you. Throughout the night, as they were one of the first families, they watched as many more people were welcomed into the shelter of the church and the pastor and his wife cared for them. Nikki, she testified that they kept saving life after life by opening up their church to complete strangers. They did go out to look for some other people, but found that some of them had already passed away in the cold. She recalled that the amount of people that we met throughout the storm, I probably wouldn't have met any of these folks ever in my life. I mean, you had people from all different races in the church, and we were all in the same situation. But what was fascinating to me as I read the article was the response that they said the people had the next morning on Christmas Day. There was a spontaneous praise that erupted. The pastor said this, I'll tell you one thing, on Christmas Day, those people, those 154 people that were here were singing the praises of God because they had been gifted with life that had been given to them by Jesus Christ himself. And the level of gratitude that they showed, I have never ever seen. When asked, well, why did you and your wife do this? Pastor Al said, we did this to show the glory of God. We wanted people to see the embers turning into a roaring inferno in light of what? In light in the light of the love of Christ. We wanted people to see the light of Christ and the love of Christ. We're just his hands and feet, his hand and feet. That's all we are. 154 lives were saved because God's servants decided to love other people. God would like to use you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you brought your people out of the slavery of Egypt and protected and provided for them in the desert. Today is the National Day of Prayer for Burma, and so I want to pray for Burma today. Pray that you protect Burma's helpless in harm's way. Shelter them from the bombs that fall, bullets that fly, in the hands of oppressors. Provide for their needs, especially food and clothing and medicine. Provide an abundance and, and bless those who brave the danger to help them. Where there is fear, bring courage. Where there is grief, bring comfort. Where there is hatred, bring love and forgiveness. And let the light of Jesus dispel spiritual darkness covering Burma. Let Jesus' love pour from your people there so that the hearts will be transformed and all will be truly alive in Christ. We ask this also for Ukraine and we want to remember those who are suffering in Turkey. 
And now, Lord, as we prepare to pool our resources as a church, guide us into ways that we might, as a collective body of believers, rescue others from danger as your service because we have been anointed and chosen and selected by you as evidenced by the presence of your spirit and our relationship with Jesus, your son. We ask these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.